All right, before I preach this morning, let me just put in a positive word for you. It's so good. I, um, when I don't have a part early in the service, sometimes I wonder who's out there, but I could tell from the singing. I didn't know what size the group was, but man, you were energized. So thank you for your singing. Uh, I've had the privilege and joy of attending many different uh, Christian gatherings and conferences where they're singing, and that is really good. But being here with you on the Lord's Day every Sunday and hearing you sing uh, is better. It's better. Thank you. If, if you are ever struggling in your walk with the Lord and you come limping in on the Lord's Day, I encourage you to come right up here and sit by me. Right here. There's something about the sound. If you're sitting in the front here, you can just hear all of the congregational singing. It's so uplifting. And so I encourage you. You got problems. You know, maybe it's where you're sitting way back there. Uh, <clears throat> so consider that. Uh, there's plenty of room. We'll make room for you. I got room in the seat. Yeah, I got more room now. My kids are all over the place. So you can come sit with us. We'd love to have you. When you were singing that uh, first song, The Lord is My Salvation, you got to the final verse. It says, And when I reach my final day, he will not leave me in the grave, but I will rise. He will call me home The Lord is my salvation. Who is like the Lord our God? Strong to save, faithful in love. My debt is paid, the victory is won. The Lord is my salvation. When we got to that part, I I got a little Baptocostal almost, you know. Uh, And that's fine. That's good and appropriate when our hearts just want to shout praise to the Lord. And we rejoice and are thankful uh, for that together. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11. In Romans 8, 5 through 11, uh, Paul continues to speak about how believers experience no condemnation because they are in Christ Jesus. We love this chapter. Uh, We're going to take our time going through Romans 8. It goes from no condemnation to no separation, as many a preacher and preacher. Believer has proclaimed over the years. We rejoice in that. But today we we get to experience a little bit more about how God does this, how we have no condemnation being in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 5 through 11 really are parts of two paragraphs where Paul talks about how the Spirit of God helps believers generally. That'd be verses 5 through 8 before describing what he does in the Roman believers personally. Um, And we'll see that transition in the text when we get down to verse 9. So verses 9 through 11 are about believers personally. Um, uh, By the way, I did create a handout that might be helpful for you. It's in the bulletin if you want to pull that out. You can look it over. I have a few slides uh, as we go along as well to help us. Um, but this passage today will be about what the Spirit does in believers and then what he does in us. It gets personal. Now, uh, I would suggest that we should think skeptically when someone starts a sentence like this. Ready? Well, the way that I like to think about God is dot, dot, dot. I think it perhaps is good to be a little bit skeptical when we have someone in our modern world say that. Unfortunately, we live in a time when hearing someone say something like that is fairly common. 
The way I like to think about God is, we can imagine a town hall meeting perhaps where everyone shares their opinion on who God is or their ignorance on who God is. When we hear something like that, we might think to ourselves, well, I really don't care too much what you think about God. I want to hear what the Bible says about him. Well, the same is true of the Christian life. When someone begins, when I think about the Christian life, I think dot, dot, dot. Now, the proper response for us as believers when we hear that is grace. It is grace that remains firmly committed to what the Bible says about the Christian life. A firm commitment that won't let mere conjecture or personal opinion remain unless it is firmly rooted in the authority of Scripture. Well, in our passage today, the Bible has two profound points to make about the nature of the Christian life. And it would be good for us to pay close attention. There is one point made about believers and the other point made about the Holy Spirit. The lesson about believers is found in verses 5 through 8. The lesson about the Spirit is found in verses 9 through 11. And each lesson is established in part of one paragraph through three truths that Paul articulates. It's a, it's a pretty quick passage, but three truths. And you, what happens is you add up the three truths in the first half, and it means one thing about believers. And then in the second half, you do easy math, right? A plus B plus C equals something. In the second half, three truths about the Spirit, which give us one fundamental quality about the Spirit in the Christian life that I want us to see. Now, in your notes, if you do have the, the handout, uh, what I'm going to do to you is a little unfair today. Um, you, you have a you know, number one in there, and then you have a fundamental truth or something about the believer, and then you have this long blank. What is the fundamental truth? We're not going to get there until we make it the whole way through A, B, and C, and then we're going to go back. Okay, so you have to pay attention. You have to follow along as we go on. We're going to do the same thing in the second half. Okay, we'll fill in those blanks. As we go, so uh, hopefully you can put up with this sort of approach just once. So let's begin with three general lessons about believers in verses 5 through 8 before we draw out the main point. The first uh, general lesson uh, established in verse 5 is those of the Spirit set their minds on the Spirit's things. A general lesson about believers. Those of the Spirit, believers, set their minds on the Spirit's things. Look in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. I want you to notice the language of verse 5 and the language of the verse right before and after it. There's a lot about flesh and spirit, and I just want us to look at this for a while. So you should have a chart in your notes, um, and if not, you can just pay attention to the PowerPoint here behind us. In the end of verse 4, 
the language that Paul uses is there are some who walk according to the Spirit, and there are some who walk according to the flesh. Okay, or invert those, uh, flesh and spirit. That is what verse 4 describes. Then when we get to the beginning of verse 5, the verse we just read, there are those who are or live. The verb is actually a being verb, so it's are. They are according to the Spirit, and they are according to the Spirit or to the flesh. Um, then by the end of the verse, there's another set of phrases that talk about the Spirit, and each one of these is important, but uh, there are those who set their minds on the things of the flesh, and there are others who set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, I'm going to leave this slide behind me, and I want to just draw out three quick lessons from it. First, right in the middle of this chart, the, the middle two... Um, Rows. I always have to think columns or rows. Middle two rows. First, in verse 5, at the beginning of the verse, Paul begins on the most basic level by describing two types of people. There are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who are according to the Spirit and those who are according to the flesh. That is, what people are. We are one or the other. We are, according to the flesh or according to the Spirit, if I were to draw one word next to that column, I would put the word existence. This describes our basic existence. There are two modes of existence for people on this planet. You are either according to the Spirit or according to the flesh. Okay, that's the first point. Uh, Then we learn uh, that who we are, verse 5, flows naturally into how we walk, verse 4b. Okay, so that first row going across there. Those who are according to the Spirit walk according to the Spirit. That is, who we are factors into the way we live. Those who are according to the flesh walk according to the flesh. Behavior springs forth from nature. If I were to write one word next to row one in the column, I would put the word orientation. Orientation. Who we are, whether we are in the flesh or in the spirit, uh, uh, springs forth into how we walk, our orientation life. Now, one last point, we'll move on. Finally, we see one of the fundamental marks of those of the Spirit is that they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That's the bottom row there. If, again, one word, since we're on this, I would put the word disposition Who we are factors into our disposition, what we will set our focus and gaze upon. Now, to understand more about that last part, we have to ask, what does this mean? 
What does it mean that those who are of the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit? And to answer that, you really have to answer two questions. First question is, what does it mean to set your mind on something? So the translation set your mind on in the ESV in verse uh, 5 here um, comes from one word in the original, and it's actually really hard to translate. The word usually has something to do with mind or thinking. Uh, Paul will use this word over and over again in, in Philippians, for instance, to talk about the way the Philippians need to focus on their entire way of thinking, their mindset. Now, in this passage, I like how one old scholar, John Murray, described what set your mind on something means. Ready? So this is what he said. He said, setting your mind on something means that something becomes, and here's his quote, the absorbing object of our thought, interest, affections, and purpose. Okay, so to set your mind on something means that it becomes the absorbing object of your thoughts, interests, affections, and purpose. In other words, because of who we are, whether in the flesh or in the spirit, we set our focus on something. And in the text, it's one of two things. We either set our focus on the things of the flesh or the things of the spirit. And that leads us into our second question. What are the things of the spirit? You ever read through this and stop and think, what are so I'm supposed to like set my, my focus on the Spirit's things. What are they? And I think that's a hard question. Might I just say, I don't know that I have a lot of unique contributions to give to this, but I might just say I think that it would involve the things that the Spirit desires for believers. And using Galatians 5, I would say this confidently, the Spirit desires that you have fruit. He wants you to have the fruit of love for God and love for neighbor. The fruit of the Spirit is love. He wants you to have the fruit of joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Those are the things of the Spirit. That is what spiritual minds, spiritual people, set their minds on. The things of the Spirit of God. But then we learn another lesson in verse 6. Setting the mind on the Spirit's things brings life and peace. Look with me at verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. In this verse, Paul offers further explanation of the importance of our mindset, our thinking. If our consistent way of thinking is on what the flesh longs for or desires, then the product or end of that will be death for us. That's what the text is saying. If, however... Our consistent focus throughout our life, our disposition, is set on what the Spirit desires because we are of the Spirit, then the end is life and peace. Life 
and peace. That's what the text says. Now, perhaps some of us could talk even this week about the way our sin has affected people, ourselves or others, and produced alienation or destruction and misery. Spirit-filled living, however, brings life and peace from God. This does not mean that we won't face difficulties or that we'll always subjectively feel at peace with God, but the reality is that, that, that we, have, we are at peace with God if we are of the Spirit and we set our focus on the things that please the Spirit of God. Now, there's another lesson, and we're going to make some applications. Don't worry. I will get nosy in a second. Verses 7 and 8, Paul considers what setting the mind on the flesh involves. If, if setting the mind on the Spirit brings life and peace, what does setting the mind on the flesh bring? Verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so what Paul is saying here is that when people set their minds on what the flesh wants, they are in direct opposition to God. They are at their enmity with him. This is important for us, even as believers, because I think sometimes we see our sin as simple failure. I just, you know, made a little mistake today. Simple failure, a minor infraction. Instead, sin is opposition to God. But we learn a few more things about the flesh here in verses 7 and 8 if we pay attention. We learn that the flesh does, does not and cannot submit to God's law. You see, the problem is not just mere rebellion or refusal for those in the flesh. The problem is inability. Notice what Paul says in this passage they cannot do. He says two things. They cannot submit to God's law. And then next, he says they cannot please God. This speaks of moral inability. The person who sets his mind on the flesh is entirely against God unable to please him. He will never find the favor of God in the sinful flesh. Okay, and so these are the three truths. Okay, uh, They are those of the Spirit set their mind on the Spirit's things. Setting the mind on the Spirit is life and peace, but setting the mind on the flesh is enmity against God. Now, those three truths point to one fundamental characteristic of believers that I want you to get. Now, here's that blank, right? You've been waiting. Go back to page one in your notes. Believers set their minds on the things of God's Spirit because the Holy Spirit of God indwells them. That's what Paul wants you to know about the Christian life. That's what he wants you to know about believers. Believers are those who set their minds on the things of God's Spirit because the Holy Spirit of God indwells them. And so in light of this first point, I think it would be good for us to ask some questions, right? Some questions about the way you're thinking and what you're setting your mind on and who you are, even more importantly. 
We could ask questions like, what sort of things do you like to think about? When you get a chance to think, what are your favorite meditations? When no one else is around, what do you like to think? What do you cultivate in your mind? Do you think about what God is doing and longs for in your life? Is that what you do? Or do you like to foster thoughts about what your sinful nature, the flesh, longs for? Another important question to ask here is, do you have the Holy Spirit inside of you? Do you? I don't want any person here today to leave without the Holy Spirit of God inside of them. I don't want any. I don't want to lose any. That's what I've been praying for last week. Every single person. God, give us every single person. I am sure that there are people here who don't know if they have the Spirit of God inside of them. Do you know that you can receive the Holy Spirit this very hour if you would pray something like this? If you pray, God, I believe in Jesus who died on the cross for my sins. I now turn from my sins and put my trust in Jesus' work on the cross for my sins. If you prayed something like that and believed in your believed it in your heart, God would put his Holy Spirit inside of you. Oh, wow. Now, if we actually believe that, which, if you're a member of Colonial Baptist Church, you most definitely should believe that. We believe that. The Spirit of God indwells us. Then there'd be some ramifications of that, wouldn't there? Yes. And that's where Paul goes next. So, now he's going to tell us one fundamental quality of the Spirit in Christian, in the Christian life. And uh, that's where we'll go. Uh, here, Paul does not want the Romans to keep things generally. He applies these truths directly to his readers personally in verses 9 through 11 when he moves from those who are of the flesh or those who are of the spirit to you, however, right? This doesn't want the Romans to be, you know, reading and thinking, okay, we're learning a lesson today about believers. No, he wants them to learn a lesson about themselves, about themselves. The following things are true then for us as well, if we're in the spirit because of our union with Jesus. Now, again, there are three points, lessons, uh, that Paul uses here to encourage Roman believers. And from these, at the end, we'll, we'll draw out what it means, the big lesson. The first point is verse 9, okay? And I would just state it this way. You are in the Spirit if the Spirit indwells you. Verse 9. Ready? You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Here Paul starts this passage by affirming that the Roman believers are in the Spirit and are not in the flesh. 
And that reality, I think, rests on one important condition for them. You are in the Spirit if, indeed, the Spirit is in you. Now, I, I don't think that Paul's saying this to produce doubt in the Roman believers. I don't think that's his point. I think he's reassuring them. One man said it this way. Paul uses the word if because he wants them to reflect on the matter and conclude, as he does, that the Spirit of God actually does dwell in them. So he poses this condition, if, to make them stop and think, well, does he? Yes, I suppose he does. A very important fundamental teaching of the Bible and of our church is that the Holy Spirit comes to make his home in every genuine believer of Christ. So Colonial, because we think the scriptures teach this, we believe uh, uh, in one God in three persons. We've been singing about them all morning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All these members uh, have been repeatedly mentioned in Romans 8 and will be mentioned throughout the rest of this chapter. But here, Paul talks about the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God in every believer. So I'd say it, I'd say it this way. Again, it's important teaching. And I know many of us get it, but you need to be reminded of it. If a person turns from his or her sins and confesses that Jesus is Lord, God not only forgives him or her of their sin, he also puts his spirit inside of that person. Simply put, if you do not have the spirit of God, then you are not a believer. So I asked initially, do you have the spirit of God inside of you? The Bible teaches that every believer does. But the lessons continue down in verse 10. Uh, The second lesson uh, I would say that he gives here is, okay, okay, so we have the Spirit inside of us, we're believers. Uh, Second lesson, the Spirit brings or gives life. we're, We're getting to why that's important, that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. He gives life. Look at verse 10. But if... Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, another way for Paul to talk about the indwelling Spirit at times in his letters is to talk about Christ living inside of you. He speaks this way in a passage in Colossians I just love as a passage that uh, years ago kind of memorized with Carissa, and we we thought of using it as a a passage to encourage us to invest in our own children. I love Colossians 1.26. says, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul talks about the glories of a long-held mystery that's now been revealed. And the nature of that mystery, the glory of that ministry, is that Jesus Christ would be in you. So there is a sense in which to have the Holy Spirit indwelling us is to have Christ 
in us. But in Romans 8, verse 10, the verse we're looking at, Paul's point is that if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, then you have life. That's what you get. Life. But what life is that? My personal opinion, I think in verse 10, it is the new life which the Holy Spirit brings believers at their conversion. Before conversion, we were dead in trespasses and sins. But then, the Spirit, to use old language, the Spirit quickened us. He made us alive. So in verse 10, when he talks about, but the Spirit is life, I think, he's, I think he is talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, there's questions there about whether it's a human spirit. I think it's the Holy Spirit. And I think he's talking about the present work of the Spirit of God who gives us spiritual life when we're converted. Do you understand that? You were dead in sins, but then the Spirit brought you spiritual life. The Holy Spirit, uh, to use an illustration in regarding conversion, is like a resuscitating device. We were dead, completely and utterly unresponsive and unable, but then the Spirit of God came upon us, actually came within us, and shot life into us. Meditate on that. Think about that for a moment. The third person of the Holy Trinity takes up residence in you. In you. What do you think that means for you in your battles against sin? Well, the ramifications are too numerous to count. Right? The Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. Now, there's one more truth. Verse 11, the Holy Spirit will give life to our mortal bodies. Verse 11, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, which this is everything we've been talking about. He's dwelling in you if you're a believer. If that's true, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also Keyword will, he will give life additionally to your mortal bodies through his spirit who is dwelling in you. When we get to verse 11, I think Paul's talking about a future blessing that the Holy Spirit brings for believers. So this refers to the future bodily resurrection of believers. You remember, Jesus is the first fruits of of the resurrection. And each Sunday we come to celebrate that, don't we? Each Sunday is Easter Sunday at Colonial Baptist Church and all around the world. Love the song, Up from the Grave He Arose. Right. Up from the Grave He Arose with a mighty triumph o'er His foes. He rose a victor from the dark domain and He lives Forever with the saints to reign. He arose, he arose. Hallelujah. 
Christ arose. We gather to celebrate that. But in this passage, Paul explains that one significant result of Jesus' resurrection is that in the future, at the return of Jesus, all of those who are in him will also be made alive. That is, our mortal bodies, our death-plagued bodies will be quickened and we will be glorified. That's why when you were singing that verse this morning, I just wanted to shout hallelujah. You see, the Spirit is a pledge that guarantees that, and He is the agent through whom it will get accomplished. We all, if you are in Christ, will get life in our mortal bodies at the return of the Lord when we're glorified. So, these three truths. You are in the Spirit if the Spirit indwells you. The Spirit gives life, and the Spirit will give life to our mortal bodies in the future. Those three truths make one unique contribution. If you stop and you think, I've been thinking about these three truths all week, just in my mind wrestling with, well, what is the main idea? And I I think it's this. Paul wants us to know that the Holy Spirit injects spiritual and physical life into dead unbelievers through their union with Jesus. Another way of saying that is, when the Holy Spirit indwells believers, He injects life into them. Life into them, whether it's spiritual life or in the future, resurrection life. You got the Spirit, you've got life that will help you in sanctification and it will eventually lead to your glorification. When the Holy Spirit indwells believers, he brings life with him. We were dead. No longer if you're in the Spirit and if the Spirit is in you. This should impact the way we view professing believers all around us. In close, I just want to make two, two or three applications here for us. I think the things we, we learned today, believers set their minds on the things of the Spirit because the Holy Spirit of God indwells them, injecting life into them. <laughs> Those things, if we really believe those, it should change the way we view people around us, those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. To get more particular, uh, this gives me hope for my children, none none of which are in the room, so I can talk about them however I want. This gives me hope for my children. Finally, grasping Romans 8 several years ago changed everything about the way that I parent. Everything. Everything. I used to think that my children were always hiding things from me. That their fundamental desire was for their sinful flesh. But if they are in the Spirit, then the Bible has a different view of the Christian life than what I thought. So I had to surrender that. I had to crucify my preconceived ideas about teenagers. Maybe because I was such a stinker of one myself. If my children genuinely know Christ, then God has shot life into them through his Holy Spirit. This does not mean my children won't sin. They will. 
but the Spirit is changing and empowering them and giving them life. So, now I appeal to them on these loftier grounds. God's Spirit is inside them, and that means spiritual and someday resurrection life for my own children. This also gives us hope for our spouse. If he or she genuinely is in Christ or in the spirit, and in the Spirit, then the Spirit is in him or her producing life. Spiritual life now and future resurrection life when Jesus returns. Now, I recognize that might be really hard for some uh, brothers and sisters here in the room to see. That might be hard to accept because all of the ways that your spouse has hurt you. But are you willing to believe this about them? If God's spirit is in my husband, then there is spiritual life in him. God is working, is pursuing, is molding, is disciplining, is encouraging, is strengthening, is changing my husband. Are you willing to believe that about him? And are you willing to appeal to him on that basis? If God's spirit is in my wife, then there's spiritual life in her. That might be hard for me to take in sometimes or believe because of the way things have unfolded. But the real question is, do we believe what the Bible says about the Christian life? If they are in the spirit, then the spirit gives them life. God's spirit is in my friends in this church, then there's spiritual life in them. I need to treat them that way and understand that God is doing a work. And one day, he will glorify them just as he glorifies me. All my sinfulness in the future when we see Christ. Let's pray together. Father, these are lessons that perhaps many in our congregation have known for quite some time. It is only those who have the Spirit of God inside of them who can please you. It is only those who have the Spirit of God inside of them that can set their mind on the things of the Spirit and who can walk in the Spirit. Lord, we know that, but it's important to consider it. It's important to consider that a member of the Holy Trinity indwells us and is producing life in us. And Lord, I pray that um, you would encourage my brothers or sisters to not only believe that about what you're doing in their life, but to believe that about others who profess faith in you, whether that would be their family members or other believers here. 
Father, then I ultimately and finally ask that you would um, grant the prayer uh, that I've been praying this whole week. That no one would leave this room being in the flesh, only in the flesh. But I pray that no one would leave in that mode of existence today, but that everyone here would be in the Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would help anyone who has yet to believe in Jesus and turn from their sins to do so, so that their end is not eternal death and destruction, so that what they might have is life and peace because your Holy Spirit indwells them too. In this quiet moment, Father, I would ask that any unbeliever would proclaim to you that they believe in Jesus and they turn from their sins. And Lord, maybe even in this moment, there would be life shot into a person in this auditorium. We thank you for the miracle of conversion And we pray, Lord, that no one would leave here without that. In Jesus' name, amen.